The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Uh, The Louis Vuitton owner. Uh, LVMH is closer to the little blue box. As sources tell CNBC, it's reached a deal to buy Tiffany & Co for $16.3 billion, with an announcement to come as soon as today. Uh, Novartis inking a $9.7 billion deal to acquire the US biotech firm Medicines Company in an agreement that will expand the Swiss drug maker's portfolio of heart treatments. Hong Kong anti-government candidates claim victory in local elections as voters turn out in record numbers to show strong support for the city's protest movement. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson vows to get Brexit done and promises no income tax increases and 50,000 more nurses in a new Conservative Party manifesto. Very good morning to you. LVMH has struck a deal to buy Tiffany & Co for 135 bucks per share, according to CNBC sources. The agreement values the US jeweler at $16.3 billion. The boards of both companies were due to meet on Sunday to discuss the offer. An announcement could be made as early as today. Novartis has agreed to acquire U.S. drug maker The Medicines Company for $9.7 billion. The Swiss company's offer is around a 24% premium to the medicines company's closing share price on Friday. Novartis aims to use the U.S. firm's cholesterol-lowering drug to expand its range of cardiovascular treatments. Well, Charlotte joins us in the studio for more to talk about some of the deals, in particular LVMH, which you're standing by for. Oh, this is amazing looking at some of the details of the deal and uh, what's reported effectively about $15 higher than the original offer that was lobbed back in October on the 18th. Not much time has elapsed, but a huge increase in the price since day one. That's right. But at the same time, this we were expecting the announcement of this engagement. Um, it was logical for Tiffany's. Um, they're trying to have a little turnaround. They had a new CEO since 2017. And this um, alliance with LVMH makes sense. For LVMH, they've been really wanting to push into the hard luxury sector and get bigger in the US. And that is obviously a perfect target for that Tiffany's iconic brand as well, which Monsieur Arnaud really likes, the iconic side of it. So of course, that makes sense. It was always a question of what price and what would be the price. And here um, we get about 135 per share. For at least 140 would have been the maximum that would be a reasonable price for uh, LVMH to pay for Tiffany. So yes, they've been negotiating in the past month or so, and now this price uh, for this potential day to be announced. Plenty of segments in luxury to go after. We saw last week uh, some challenges around the beauty care division, not in luxury, but in the lower end of the space. So that's been a bit of an issue, I think, for some companies trying to expand in beauty. We've seen enormous competition in leather goods and, and apparel, but jewellery, a stand-up part of the market, isn't it? And it is the fastest growing sector of the luxury market. Last year, it was about 7%. That's the fastest growing one. Uh, and for um, also for uh, LVMH, like last year, 
their luxury division, the profit was up 37% last year alone. So of course, they want to beef up that division. Um, the leather and goods division for them is about 40%, but they want to beef up the luxury one because they can make a lot of money. The big brands, Van Cleef and Cartier, they belong to Richemont, one of their competitors. They only have Bulgari as a big, big uh, known brand in that sector. So again, acquiring Tiffany makes sense for LVMH to beef up the division and, and try to take a share of that growing market. I mean, why not at the moment is my point as well. There is a, a vast amount of money out there. We which tie this with the bigger picture story that valuations are seen as elevated for many, many companies as well. So why not use that firepower? Now, of course, I haven't seen the breakdown of where the cash and debt that will be attached to this. But LVMH, let's put, give me some numbers here as well. LVMH shares over the last five years have rallied 205%. They trade at 25 times forward, which is above the mean of the average that we saw. The mean, which average is the same word, of course, Monday morning. Uh, but it, it the, we saw last time round. It is a very highly rated company. Dare I say it, there are even central banks that are buying corporate bonds in Europe at ridiculously low yields. So they can still have that as a backstop as well. So it's a highly rated company. It's seen enormous growth. I've been looking at the balance sheet of LVMH last time round, well, from the middle of the year as well, where they're basically Basically, their revenues were about 25 billion euros. Their profits were extraordinary. Net profit as well uh, was around 3.3 billion. The uh, net operating profit came up 14% to 5.3. So what I'm saying is it's not a big bet for this company in many, many ways. 16 billion or whatever it is, it sounds a lot of money to thee and me, but actually for a 200 billion euro company, it's not the biggest bet in the world. I agree with the market cap size argument because it is also hard to try and find growth. Mm. If you're doing it yourself organically, it's hard to find that in the business, create but, enough but momentum has and changes. It has, but years, right actually. across different divisions of the business. But as yeah. you get bigger and bigger, it makes it harder to have an impact on the bottom line when you're such a big company. So in some ways, I think they're also backing themselves in with a very large <laughs> scale acquisition. They think they can do the business better than what Tiffany's management's been doing the business for, for, for many years, right? And that's yes, the, the and beauty of LVMH. Be their largest acquisition. I mean, they've been growing on acquisitions. That's what Monsieur Arnaud has been doing for years and years. That's how they've been growing. But of course, you know, Tiffany's, again, is one that made sense. And you had a willing seller. Again, Tiffany's have been trying to change uh, their business and turn around. And that's exactly what LVMH did for Bulgari. It's not the same kind of beast. Bulgari was 3 billion euros when they purchased it. Here we're talking about 16. So yes, it is a bit more of a gamble for LVMH. But again, as you say, a super strong company, excellent results. They're on the roll. And it's not only, as we say, it's always China and the Chinese consumer and etc. I mean, the US is a huge market for them. Tiffany's it's 24% problem, of their revenue. Tiffany's problem appears to me, just looking at the spreadsheet of their finances, doesn't appear to be that they're not making a lot of money on the sales they have. It's just they don't have a great sales growth strategy at the moment as well. Looking at their full year results at the end of July, $4.4 billion of revenues against net income of 561. Well, that's far more respectable than many companies. The problem is that revenue figure was actually down 1% as well. Uh, the net income figure actually rose 13%. So the profitability compared with revenues actually has been picking up. But the revenue story looks like it's been flatlining. I think we can tell you why. Who buys Tiffany's anymore? I don't know. I, I, I must right. be honest, this is your domain, ladies. That's don't... my point. Who buys Tiffany's? People have been buying it many, for many, many well, years. Well, someone does. $4.4 billion, billion dollars worth of revenues. Right, that's that's it, not mean, it is it? It doesn't have the same sizzle effect that a lot of other luxury brands have. Right. And this is the LVMH formula. They have the ability to put sizzle back into designer brands. And no doubt they'll give a bit of a remake and, and they'll make it super high-end. They'll also make it affordable. They'll have the strategy across the board, which is mm. what they do with the LVMH brand. And that's the problem they have with Tiffany's, is trying to find where do they want to stand. Do they go to the entry level of the market, you know, the, for the young teenager, first present, etc. 
or do they go for really top high, high luxury, which is like Bulgari and Cartier and Van Cleef? And they have to try to find where DNA stands. Where do they want to compete? And of course, again, LVMH can provide a strategy. The CEO of Tiffany is an ex-Bulgari man, you know, and he's worked with LVMH. He's worked with Monsieur Arnaud. And again, LVMH has the expertise of doing this. And being part of a bigger conglomerate for Tiffany's would give them the time and breadth and, and you know, amount of money and time and expertise to do that transformation rather than just on a standalone company. Yeah, let, let's face it, we're talking about two geographic areas here. I mean, you talk about who buys it. Euro Europeans have their own views on the multitude of brands. But I mean, if you're looking to go after A, the US consumer, and B, the Chinese consumer, or A, the Chinese consumer, and B, the US, I don't care which way around it is, it's actually a very interesting uh, proposition to grow the market in those two areas. Just needs a bit more sizzle. Uh, well, we we'll to talk a little bit later on about regulators too, which we haven't spoken about. But we do have another big deal that we want to talk about. Charlotte, thank you very much for breakdown LVMH. Uh, maybe we will get a bit more detail over the course in the morning too. Sure. But Novartis, uh, a fairly huge deal too. And I think different dynamics at play in this sector versus luxury. And what you've got has been that expiration of patents for many of the drugs that these companies spent huge amounts of money on. When those patents expire, then all the generics flood into the market. And that's been the case for Novartis as it sees some of its big blockbuster drugs start to slip off the, the list and into the generic category. So a deal like this, very, very important to the revenue streams uh, for Novartis. Um, Novartis is looking to buy the medicines company. It's looking to, it's agreed to pay $9.7 billion in cash. I think what you're right, and you're, you're talking about one side of the equation, which is the patent cliff, which has been a major issue for ever since. You get to the end of it and you just plug yeah, and this generic what, um, territory. I, it was, I can't remember where, I think it was from Bernstein. In fact, the analyst was from Bernstein. Very good analyst we had. But he said, look, the thing about um, the analysis of these companies, is very easy to do so. You can see exactly how long they've got these drugs exclusively for. You can see exactly when the generic is coming in. So you need, and I think the word of the morning you've used twice already is sizzle. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very interesting. And I think what uh, Vasnara Seaman has done, he's taken a bit of a punt if I may accuse him of doing so. I mean, look, it's a very interesting company, the medicines company, but they've got this new drug, which is called Inclisiron. Now, it's had late stage success uh, controlling cholesterol um, levels and what have you. Apparently, this could be an absolutely transformational drug. Tens of millions of patients, according to the copy I'm looking at, uh, in fact, including Arash Masoudi, a man I know at the FT, um, have increased risk of cardiovascular problems. But this, this drug, according to the copy, could really improve patient outcomes and help healthcare systems address the leading cause of death. So dare I say it, that Novartis and Vasnara Seaman have got in, they've bought growth mm. and potentially bought an explosive drug here, which could do many things for, let, dare I say it, developed world taste and developed world problems. That's right. I mean, what a lot of people die of in developed worlds. It's heart disease. And if you think about the history for Novartis, they were fairly big in cardiovascular diseases mm. before the patent cliff hit one of their key drugs. But they're back in the game with an, an Entresto, which is one of their big headline uh, drugs in that space, and now adding a cholesterol-lowering drug Did to you the see equation. The number, though? It's, quite it's significant. extraordinary. This, this so-called bad cholesterol stuff by tens of million Americans, again, I'm reading the same copy from the FT, by, uh, can reduce this, apparently can reduce it by 58%. Hmm. Now that's stunning if this uh, works and goes through. The drug has yet to be approved by silencing a gene and reducing a protein that controls the production of the so-called bad cholesterol. That's the science behind it as well. But if Which it does get its full approval and gets a strong rollout, which the GPs often go for. They, they prefer the, the cholesterol-lowering medicine as a preventative to a much bigger issue of heart disease. So you can see that it's quite popular for the health system to be adopting these types of early medicines. 
Indeed, indeed. Well, let's move that aside. Um, I'm seeing words on my screen, but I'm not seeing it next to my desk. And those words are PG Tips and Liptons. <laughs> Shall we just wait it out until we uh, I just, just, just a little word for our friends on the floor management team as well. PG Tips and Lipton. Good old builder's tea. Two around the set would be lovely right now. <laughs> Do you know, I'll tell you a story about PG Tips. And she's very of the moment because we've got another very big climate change conference coming up next week in Madrid, which I think Greta Thunberg will be there. You're she... not telling me they're unsustainable, the old PG Tips. I'm telling you, the lady who got the COP21 deal is, uh, I'd like to say she's a friend of mine, it's Cristiana Figueres, yes. yeah? She was behind the whole thing. Dynamic she was the one who was herding the cats. Amazing woman. She's, I said, how do you do it? She goes, PG tips. And there you go. <laughs> so they are sustainable. Again, I mean, I, I, by the way, I'm not in, paid to endorse anything. So anyway, there are other great tea brands available, which we'll soon find out from the team. Uh, PG tips and Lipton are no longer Unilever's cup of tea, according to The Telegraph. Uh, the reports that the consumer goods giant is looking to offload its traditional tea brands. Have you not seen how much I drink? Anyway, uh, builder's tea, as Karen says. It comes amid slowing demand for the perfect cup. I find that very hard to believe. Anyway, with data from Kantar showing that UK sales fell 3.4% this year, last year. It's true. Have you been down the tea aisle in your chosen supermarket? Mm, it used to be you know, a bit of Tetley, a bit of Yorkshire, a bit of uh, PG Tips and Lipton's, dare I say. Now there are... Again, it's like going down the chocolate aisle. There are like a hundred different teas. It's very confusing. But that's the Licorice same. In a teas. In lot of consumer like categories, there's enormous competition. Now. Yeah. Pure competition. Well, it's the hunt for craft. And actually, yeah. there is a very serious point here. Whether you're a mm. brewer, uh, whether you are a cheesemaker, whether you're a tea producer, no matter whatever it is, there is this hunt for craft and for localization. Well, dare I say it fits in with one or two themes yeah, which that we've, we talked about. You can just establish overnight. So where is the brand value in a, a, a PG Tips that's been around for many, many years? Yeah. And when you're a startup tea company that can put yourself on this on par with a, you know, an established brand, that's very disruptive for these brands and the valuation models. Yeah, there are people who like sophisticated tea. Are you a sophisticated tea lady? I know uh, you're a sophisticated coffee When lady. I had my one tea once yeah. a quarter at home, I yeah. like a sophisticated tea, uh, but day in, day out. <laughs> Yeah, just a bit of a PG tips with the Keep it coming. Brown and muddy, yeah? <laughs> okay, right, moving on. Uh, actually, much more serious story, an extraordinary story, actually. Coming up on the show, Hong Kong's anti-government movement gets a boost with a landslide win in local elections. We'll come to that. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast yeah. to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Hong Kong's pro-democracy camp has claimed a landslide victory in local elections with historically high turnout seen as a boost for the anti-government protest movement. Pro-democracy parties gained control in 17 of the city's 18 district councils 
in a rare weekend free from unrest. A quick look at the Hong Kong market in trade up 1.6 plus percent, uh, 27,000 uh, the handle that we're seeing on the boards. Uh, Emily joins us with more from Hong Kong. Emily, just talk us through the ramifications of the vote, the high turnout that we saw, and what that could mean for the protest movement going forward. Yep, that's right, Karen. It was a big weekend here in Hong Kong, and the markets are cheering that uh, the successful election that was held here yesterday, the district councils, and uh, the couple of days of peace in the lead up to that, and the peace that still exists on the back of the elections and the results that we have just got. It was a record voter turnout, uh, 71.2%. Uh, we got close to 3 million people heading to the polls uh, just yesterday to make themselves heard. Uh, what was uh, up for ballot or up for vote was was 452 seats across 18 district councils. And this is the first time that all seats were contested uh, among 1,090 candidates. Now, it was a major win for the pan-Democrats, sweeping 17 of the 18 districts. Uh, opposition had... Uh, basically held uh, holds now the majorities in the 17 out of 18, uh, overtaking the pro-establishment camp, which held all 18 districts in the previous election. Now, record high turnout, as I mentioned, just under 3 million people turning out. These are just low-level elections, uh, neighborhood issues, if you will, like how many trash cans on the street, uh, traffic lights and bus stops, if you will. Uh, but with this, uh, I guess the biggest thing that the district council will have is 117 seats in the election committee. Now, the EC is the body of 1,200 individuals that will help choose the next, next chief executive here in Hong Kong. Uh, the CE election is not for another couple of years, so we won't have to think about that just yet. But the fact that it is now stacked with pan-Democrats uh, to hold these 117 seats is a big deal. That's about 10 percent of the 1,200. Uh, so that's important to watch out for. We got a chance to hear from Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's chief executive, on the back of uh, the voting results, and she issued a statement. Uh, she said that voters were keen to express their views through the election. The election was held in very difficult environment. Uh, it was carried out in a peaceful and orderly manner. And uh, she said she's going to be respecting the election results. The government will humbly listen to the citizens' opinion and seriously reflect on it. As I mentioned, it has been relatively calm here uh, for the last uh, four or five days. And the question remains, though, uh, what will become of the more than 25 weeks of protests uh, that have uh, gripped Hong Kong and how the protesters and the pan-democrats will move this forward. Emily, can I ask you a difficult question, which I don't know if you can have, give me the answer to, but what is China more afraid of? Three million peaceful Hong Kong residents voting uh, very clearly against the rule of Beijing or 50 to 100 protesters at the Polytechnic University. I would suggest they're more, it seems to me, more fearful of the ramifications of three million out of over four million registered voters uh, going against their, their, their preferred candidates. Well, I don't necessarily think that uh, this is uh, going against their preferred candidate, but uh, the elections here in Hong Kong have shown uh, that uh, people just want to have a bigger say. They want the government to listen to their views and uh, they want a, a way for them to be able to express their views and they're doing it 
just that this past weekend in a peaceful manner. And they're hoping that with this uh, display that the government will listen to what they have to say and try to, to meet them maybe halfway on uh, some of the concerns and the demands that they have. Uh, protesters have asked for five demands. It is not clear whether or not uh, the government or Carrie Lam will be giving any more into their demands other than withdrawing the bill. Uh, but they do want to have more democracy. They want to have a bigger say in universal suffrage. And they showed the government this weekend that they do have a voice here and they did it peacefully. So we'll see how the government is going to be picking up the ball. Uh, I think the ball is now in the government's court on the way forward and the next step. Excellent. Look, thank you very much indeed for that. And obviously, we're all very pleased it went off peacefully. But what a huge vote. 71% as opposed to 47% in 2015. 4.1 million people registered to vote and more than half the population casting votes. 2.9 million. That is a huge statement towards Beijing and towards Carrie Lam. They want some sort of progress made and uh, with a you know, fairly large leap forward. Think about the UK. We've got a vote coming up as well. A very significant vote. Not voting about bins at local council elections, but voting around the future of the country here come the 12th of December. So will voter turnout be big here as people look for some movement, an issue that's held so, the country great back? great question. Turnout was pretty good last couple of times, we've obviously with the, um, the referendum and the 2017 election. I think people are expecting a good turnout this mm. time around. Um, right. President Trump, meanwhile, wants a phase one trade deal with China. How many times have we read something along these lines? But won't turn a blind eye to unrest in Hong Kong. That's according to U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. The top American security official stressed a preliminary pact is possible still by the end of the year, but said Washington is closely watching developments in the Chinese-ruled city. Uh, legislation supportive of the Hong Kong protest movement has been passed by both the House and the Senate, but the president has not been clear uh, on if he'll sign the bill amid trade negotiations with China. I see markets manager to shrug off some of that red ink as they closed out the trading week, putting some green back onto the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ, about four tenths high for the likes of the Dow. But it was a weak trading week over the course of what we saw for the last uh, few days, and effectively the Dow falling, uh, as we saw, about half of a percent over the week, also breaking a four-week winning streak. And don't forget, we've seen a very long run of green as investors have moved a long way to bank in a phase one trade deal being inked and also much central bank support and the backdrop from the so just a little bit of cooling off from that sentiment was a real standout last week. If you're looking for areas of the market that investors were still willing to be invested in, healthcare is standout. Uh, biotech helping to lead the sector higher as it uh, outperformed for the week and also hit a fresh record close in session. But uh, note too, we've seen more deal activity in the sector with the likes of Novartis going after the medicines company. Quite telling that uh, there's still this chasing of growth going on for many of the major players. Asia today, on the back of the result in Hong Kong, you can see that uh, very strong trade, 1.7% on the back of the very high turnout at local elections. Uh, the Chinese market trading up by six-tenths of a percent. Shenzhen trading weaker, and you've got the Cosby, a very strong session, close to 1% for the South Korean market. The opening calls here in Europe, and the early trade this morning uh, looks positive, as you can see. What we saw as we closed out Friday, a very decent trading day for the FTSE here in the UK, 1.2% higher, also helping break a losing streak that you've seen uh, for a couple of sessions. But and I think the same story, too, if you look at the rest of the markets, modestly firmer for the European markets Friday. So we look to reinforce that position and also park some of that red ink we saw across the trading week for the European markets. A quick look at how the dollar is trading morning session. 
It is a little bit firmer versus the Japanese yen, but you can see on the defensive versus some of the more risk-on currencies, uh, the Chinese currency, euro and sterling also making gains versus uh, the US dollar. Let's bring in Vasilius Ginakis, who is head of FX strategy at uh, Bank Lombard Odia. Nice to have you on board with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Just give us a sense of the risk on tone as we start out the week, because we still have no progress on phase one of a trade deal. Question marks around how much central bank stimulus we can expect next year coming up to the key Christmas season. So what can we anticipate for this week? Well, to be honest, I think it pretty much everything hinges on, on trade developments and the negotiations between US and China. Um, I think it's fair to say that when we went through initially through a phase in October, what there was some market uh, euphoria back then. We saw risk assets rallying. We, see, we saw a very, very bad month for the dollar, actually down 2% on a trade-weighted basis. Now, as we moved into November, uh, now obviously markets started getting a bit more anxious because we were not really getting the decisive headlines that we would like to. But the view here is that we're making incremental steps towards a phase one deal. I think it's, it's fair to say it's going to be a limited deal in in, in scope, in terms of it's not going to cover um, uh, various aspects, and I suspect it's going to have very little on uh, intellectual property rights. Uh, but I think, uh, to the extent that we're going to get a phase one deal, potentially um, uh, by the end of the year, uh, I think the market is going to perceive that as a good sign. Let me say the following. I mean, we went through a really uh, uh, rough period since uh, mid of uh, 2018, and there, there were two things that they were working pretty much in parallel. First of all, there was the actual effect of the trades, of the world trade being clogged because of the tariffs. But the other one, the second one, uh, which to a certain extent you can actually say that uh, in various points has been more important was market sentiment, investor sentiment, uh, business sentiment. Now, if businesses' investments start seeing uh, some sort of progress, I think this, this issue with the sentiment is going to start getting improved and you're probably going to see some risk normalizing. Vasilis, very good morning to you, my friend. Um, if we do get a trade deal and if the market rallies on the back of it and if things are perceived to be safer and less volatile around the world, does that mean the central banks have less pressure to act and as such we lose one of the other potential props for the market? Well, Steve, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things you, you, you always have to counterbalance. You, you have the negatives, you have the risks, and you have the positives, the stimulus. But the stimulus has to be there for a reason whenever uh, there, there is the, the offsetting force uh, because of the negative reasons. I think that's true. I think what you're saying is absolutely true uh, in the sense that, yes, well, first of all, monetary policy, with the exception of the U.S., and potentially um, uh, in emerging markets, but other major central banks like the ECB, uh, you know, the, the BOJ have pretty much um, um, uh, come to a point where they cannot really do anything uh, more meaningful from here, whether there is an escalation or whether there is a de-escalation de in, in uh, trade uh, tensions. So I think uh, to the extent that we're going to get some normalization and a modest pickup in, in, in trade, which is going to start filtering through into growth, uh, yes, eventually the need to provide more stimulus from the monetary uh, policy channel is going to be less. Um, you have a very large thematic piece out, which Karen and I have both been pouring through, which is Outlook 2020. And you're asking the big question. I don't know what the answer is, though, so you're going to tell us now. Uh, the question is, is the dollar heading for a secular decline? To which the answer is... That's right. 
Um, we think it is. We think it is. And uh, I'll tell you basically the way uh, I, I see things over the past one and a half year. Um, uh, basically, the, 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 we need to separate how the dollar has actually moved over the past one and a half uh, year. Uh, the main appreciation in the dollar came uh, from April 2018 to November 2018. That was the big rally in the dollar. And since then, it has been going up and down, up and down, but it hasn't really done much on a year-to-date basis, simply uh, up uh, half a percent. And what, what happened there was not because the Fed was actually hiking rates, because the Fed was hiking rates in 2017, and still the dollar was actually falling off a cliff. What happened is that you had the uncertainty because of trade, sentiment deteriorated, and at the same time, you had the U.S. economy being cushioned uh, by the late cycle stimulus. But now, if you get the uncertainty slightly better, uh, you have a dollar which is overvalued, and at the same time, you don't have the fiscal impulses there in the U.S. Uh, because they are pretty much fading, then that implies that you're more likely to start moving in a more fundamentally aligned territory, which means that the dollar, the overvalued dollar, should actually start converging lower. Silly as a natural question then, uh, what benefits versus the dollar could it be the euro at this point? Well, uh, okay, let, let me say the following. First of all, in terms of our um, uh, forecast uh, going one year out, I think uh, we have it at 115. Um, so it's, it's a relatively modest appreciation from here because uh, the, there is no question that uh, the Eurozone still faces uh, a number of uh, headwinds, uh, especially those that are coming from, from Germany. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, let me say what really matters for, for Eurozone's experts and how it, uh, it is really being affected uh, by the currency uh, is actually the trade-weighted euro, which basically is used as a proxy for all the various trades that uh, the Eurozone is doing for the rest of the world. Now, to the extent that the trade-weighted euro is appreciates, but it's held in check, as we pretty much expect, there isn't going to be so much of an impact. And let's not forget that because of the value chains, there is a lot of uh, empirical and academic evidence uh, over the past four or five years that the pass-through from FX to the actual economy has been very much limited than we thought 10 or 15 years ago. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.